invite you this afternoon to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and I want to read verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are composed of 89 chapters in all, there is only one place in those four Gospels where Jesus tells us about his heart. Here in Matthew 11, he tells us, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Only in this one place does the Son of God pull the veil back and let us peer down into the core of who he is. The one time he speaks to us about his heart, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Well, this text is something of a springboard for our Lord's Supper sermons. When I have the opportunity in recent months to lead in Lord's Supper, it's been off and on. And we have preached so far twice from this theme, and we come back to it again this afternoon. But before we do that, let's pray for the help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given unto us a Savior who is gentle and lowly in heart the kind of Savior that we need. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to draw near to him and him to us. And we pray that you would help us to imitate our Savior in these graces as well. Bless us, we pray, with the help of the Holy Spirit, apart from whom none of these things can take place. We pray these things, especially now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you and I were pressed to say what most characterizes the moral development of civilizations since the beginning of the Christian era, we would have to say that it is the growth of compassion. Compassion is that sympathetic sensitivity by which we identify ourselves with others, feeling what they feel and making their sufferings and their desires ours. One of the most visited sites in Rome is the ancient Colosseum. It was Rome's first permanent amphitheater. It was able to hold almost 80,000 people, we are told. It was built during the reign of Emperor Vespasian, who funded its construction by using the plunder of Rome's victory in the last few years of the war in Judea, ending in A.D. 72. And after the tyrannical reign of Nero, Vespasian wanted to show that he was different than Nero, and he wanted to show this by providing entertainment for his people. And to this day, people marvel as they visit there in Rome, the architectural wonder that is there, the symmetry of what they were able to accomplish and do without the kind of modern advantages that we have. But upon closer inspection, 
A brutally dark history emerges, drenched in cruelty and bloodshed. What began as athletic games degenerated into unthinkably barbaric, grotesque brutalities against thousands of individuals. The amphitheater became what one has called a glorified viewing platform upon which lives were brutally tortured and extinguished for mere human entertainment. Captured slaves were trained to be gladiators who would fight wild beasts until either the gladiator or the beast was killed. Often gladiators, they would fight one another to the death. Church historian Philip Schaff tells us that these barbarous contests of beasts and gladiators not rarely consumed 20,000 human lives in one month. Such was the glut for sadistic entertainment. Even women became the objects of sadistic delight as they were tied to bulls or chariots and dragged mercilessly to their death. Christians were fed to the lions. One horrifying instance, for instance, of martyrdom is that of Antipas, a man who was placed into a bronze hollow bull with a fire beneath its belly. And out of the bull's open mouth came his screams of agony, much to the frenzied delight of the bloodthirsty crowd. Others were sentenced to the roasting seat, in which they were slowly roasted to death. Historians who have combed the writings of that era, they have found very few ancient Romans that raised any voice of concern about this which was going on. Perhaps the only emperor that we know about is Marcus Aurelius. Most of the emperors and intellectuals, they were keen to keep the torture coming, viewing these games as a convenient device for controlling the masses. Now try to imagine what it would be like to be there in that Colosseum and hear the rumbling, tumultuous roar of 60, perhaps 70,000 spectators screaming with delight over the torture and slaughter of other human beings. In addition to providing sadistic entertainment to the Colosseum and in other amphitheaters around the empire, public torture was also used to instill fear. And that's why they crucified slaves all around the empire. But since those brutal days, in countries where the culture of those countries has been influenced by Christianity, the power of feeling for others in sympathy and compassion, that power that draws people together, this has changed societies in a, a, a remarkable way. It has taken people and brought them together in a way that the unspeakable cruelties of ancient Rome largely have been extinguished. And between rich and poor, strong and weak, the wronged and the wrongdoer, there is at least some degree of sympathy where Christianity has made its influence upon those cultures. Laws are on the books, even in our own country, against cruel and inhumane punishments. And the opposite has taken place. Every hospital, every philanthropic institution that seeks to protect the helpless and enlightened ignorant and raise the fallen is a tribute to the growth of compassion introduced by the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And where genuine Christianity does not prevail, because it doesn't prevail all around the world, inhumanity is still there. Brutality still prevails. You think of the horrors of the Holocaust, the slaughter of civilians by the Russians in Grozny and now Ukraine, 
the brutality of the Syrian army, the callousness of those who perpetrated 9-11. And on a smaller everyday scale, think of the indifference that is suffered in all across in many parts of the world just because of this idea of karma, the idea that people just get what they deserve. So there's no reason to feel sorry for them. They're just getting what they deserve. But where a truly Christian spirit has prevailed, at least some tenderness exists. And where this tenderness prevails, at least some compassion for the plight of others is there. And this takes place and is manifested where organizations exist for the relief of people that suffer. And it's a simple fact of history that this enthusiasm for compassion has had its main origin in the coming of the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It has had its origin in the teaching and example of this one, of whom we read a moment ago, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now in our first sermon on this theme, we began with a description of the heart of Jesus. In Jesus' assertion, I am gentle and lowly of heart, he mentions two virtues. He speaks of his gentleness and his lowliness. The Greek word praus, which is translated gentle or meek in the King James, it's found in the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Peter exhorts wives to nurture more than anything else the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty, and here's the same word, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God, 1 Peter 3, 4. And outside the New Testament, it's often used this word for a gentle breeze, a gentle voice, for instance. And pertaining to persons, it means mildness or a graciousness. And the other word that Jesus uses to describe his heart is the word lowly. It's a word that's often translated humble in the New Testament. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But typically, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and also in the New Testament, which reflects that Hebrew heritage, the Greek word refers not to humility as a virtue, but rather it refers to the destitution of some people, people that have been thrust down by the adverse circumstances of life. It's a word that describes people that have been humbled by their circumstances, those that have been oppressed, those that have been reduced to degradation and contempt. This is what Jesus says of himself. He says, I am lowly. This is the heart of Jesus, gentle and lowly. And taken together, these traits, they manifest themselves in a readiness to forgive, a readiness to endure, and a readiness to receive. And so he says to every one of us, I am willing to receive you, the lowest, the poorest, the most despised, the most ignorant, the most rejected among you. This is what we preached in our first sermon. It's because it's been so spread out, I'm taking some time for review. In our second sermon, we move from this abstract description to concrete examples of the tender heart of Jesus. And so as we read through the Gospels, we soon find that Jesus is profoundly impressed by the sorrows and sufferings that have been unleashed on humanity by the entrance of sin into the world. And the sight of this sorrow, the sight of this misery, it fills his soul. It rouses him to do something to remedy the evil. In our last sermon, we took up the first of two points that are there in the outlines that are provided 
in your bulletins. We look first of all at the excellence of this tenderness. And here I have in mind its excellence in comparison to various responses to misery that are manifested around uh, in humanity. There are various feelings which, with which men and women commonly regard the sorrows and the sufferings of other people. There are some people that are utterly regardless about the misery of others. In fact, they inflict misery upon other people. They're like Putin, unconcerned to order the leveling of cities, making widows by the thousands and orphans by the thousands. And then there's a second kind of person. Although they don't consciously inflict misery on people, they're unmoved by the sight of misery. And like the priest of the Levite in Jesus' parable, they see the poor traveler laying for dead on the side of the road, they just go on the other side. They, they don't want to see it. And then there's a third kind of individuals. They, can see, they can't see misery without feeling some pity for the people. But they're content to let other people deal with it. They'll send their money, perhaps, to an organization to deal with it, but they don't want to get involved. But then there's a fourth kind of person, a higher class of individuals, people that then devote themselves to search out misery and to relieve misery. The cry of woe, so repulsive to others, attracts their attention. And whenever they see somebody in distress, they take it home to their hearts, they make it their own, and they live to lessen that distress. They identify with the sufferer. They dwell upon the suffering. And they can't rest until it is alleviated. And among these types, Jesus, of course, is the leader among the fourth type. Those that are tender toward those in misery. Matthew tells us that he went around healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Matthew 4.23. And when, he, when we penetrate down to the deep, deeper principle that impelled the Lord Jesus to do this, we discover that the thing that, that especially affected his heart as he saw the sufferings and the miseries of humanity is that beneath it all is man's alienation from God. He could see the deeper cause of the problem. He could see that it was sin that brought this upon the world. The deep source of our misery, you see, that, that brought him down from heaven, heaven's glory, made him live among us and die for us. It was the alienation that has come about because of sin. So this is upon the heart of Jesus when he seeks to relieve the misery of sinners. Well, then having noted the excellence of his tenderness, second place, in our last sermon, we looked at the appearance of this tenderness. And what is in his heart is manifested in his life. And we noticed in the first place his tenderness towards those afflicted by the results of the curse. Sin has brought misery on this world. And he's made it very plain that you can't draw a one-for-one equation between that particular man's sin and his suffering. The man born blind is the example. But Sin has brought it, in general, upon this, this cursed human race. After Adam's sin, the whole race fell under a curse. And many miseries have come upon all of us because of it. And as Jesus walked the face of this earth, his heart was moved with the sight of the ravages of the curse all around him. And his heart moved him to do something about it. 
Because Jesus' acts of compassion were so many, the Gospels sometimes speak in general of the many acts of compassion, of the many individuals that crowded around him. For instance, we read in Matthew 14, 14, when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Then in other places, the Gospels focus on individual acts of compassion, the healing of a leper, the healing and forgiveness of a paralytic let down to the roof, the raising of a widow's son from the dead, his tears at the graveside of Lazarus. These are just some of the examples of explicit times in the New Testament where compassion is connected with what he did. And then in addition to telling us about his compassion on the results of the curse and all the suffering and misery that surrounds him, there is also special mention in the New Testament of his tenderness towards sinners. Time after time in the Gospels, it's the disgusting, it's the socially despised, it's the inexcusable, and it's the undeserving sinner. This is the one to whom Jesus is drawn. And for this reason, his enemies deride him. They call him a friend of sinners. As if that's the worst thing you could be. And when Jesus told the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, it was in response to the complaint of the Pharisees, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In Mark 6.34, we read what happened leading up to the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, when he came out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. And in that place, it's not because they were hungry, as we read elsewhere, but it was because they were like sheep having no shepherd. And because of this, he taught them. He saw their spiritual need. He saw their sin. And he gave himself to address that issue. Well, having looked in our last sermon at the excellence and at the appearance of this tenderness, and we turned to many passages of Scripture as we went through that, we come now to, as it were, finish our sermon and build upon that. We're not going to be turning to so many passages this afternoon, but be building upon what we preached last time. I want to come primarily to deal this afternoon with the prominence of this tenderness. And here I want to ask and answer two questions that are in Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, which is a book that, as I told you, has suggested this series of sermons. The first question is, what dominates the picture of Christ in the Gospels? When we read through the Gospels, as we take notice of the place where Jesus' character shines out, his heart comes out, what do we see most often in the Gospels? Well, indeed, there are places where other aspects than compassion are manifested. For instance, his knowledge is such that he frequently outstrips the PhDs, so to speak, of his day. In Mark 1.22, we read that when he spoke, the audience was astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. His knowledge, his infallible knowledge, he could, he could speak not just, with, well, I think this is so, or Rabbi so-and-so says so, but he spoke with authority. And again, when the religious experts were trying to trip him up, his wisdom foiled every attempt that they made. 
And yes, he's one whose holiness even causes one of his disciples, Peter, to fall down before him and say, Depart from me, because I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Luke chapter 5 and verse 8. We read another instance of the holiness of Jesus in John chapter 2. Where we read of that time in his early ministry when he took a whip and he drove out the money changers from God's house. And John tells us the disciples then remembered the, the prophecy, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And at that moment, he was consumed, you see, with holy zeal by a burning jealousy for the holiness of God and of his house. Now, we mustn't diminish these aspects of his character. But the dominant image that's burned into our minds as we read through the four Gospels the most vivid and the most arresting aspect of the portrait that the gospel writers give to us of Jesus is the way the Holy Son of God is moved to go towards and touch and heal and forgive and receive and embrace people that are the objects of his compassion, people that least deserve it and yet truly desire it. The range of his compassion is universal, like the sun shining from one horizon to the other. I want to just give you a couple passages that speaks of this broad range of his compassion. Turn with me, first of all, to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we read in verses 32 and following. And here is a description of what the hymn writer had in mind when he wrote the hymn that we just sang. The hymn that reflects upon what happened in the evening. Verse 32, at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Compassion is not explicitly mentioned there, but it's obvious that this was his response. They crowded around him and he responded to their dire needs. Now turn with me to chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, verse 31. We read in that verse, he said to them, speaking to his disciples, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But when the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities, they arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, doesn't say, don't you understand I was trying to get away from you so I could have a little break? That's not what he said. When he came out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Well, these two passages describe the broad range of his compassion. 
And as we go to the individual manifestations of it throughout his life, we see how broad this was. In addition to Jews, it touches a Samaritan woman. In addition to a Roman centurion, a Canaanite woman. It's extended to the courtier and to also to the peasant, to the ruler of a synagogue and to the outcast of a synagogue. It extends to the virtue-clad and the vice-ridden. It extends to the upright citizen as well as the woman of ill repute, a woman who was known as a sinner. It extends to the trivial occasion of a wedding not having wine when it's run out, to the overwhelming sorrow that he had in breaking down in tears at a gravesite. It extends to the partial ignorance of his disciples as well as the absolute spiritual destitution of the multitudes. It extends to a city about to experience judgment as well as the earnest inquirer who can't depart from his riches, the rich young ruler who went away but said Jesus loved him. He had compassion on him. It extends to the man with partial disability, the man with a withered hand, as well as the man completely vine, completely disabled. It extends to Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, a woman in royalty, as well as Mary Magdalene, an outcast, out of whom he had cast seven demons. It extends to everyone, you see. All kinds. His tenderness, his gentleness, it's extended toward every condition that crosses his path. His compassion meets them all, and it meets them at the point of their urgent need. And the tenderness and compassion, you see, it radiates in every direction. Using the word bowels in the sense of one's inner being, the Puritan Richard Sibbs puts it this way. When Christ saw people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. The works of grace and mercy in Christ, they come from his bowels first. In other words, they come from his deep inner being. And then he adds, whatever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. And then he goes on one, one step further. He did it inwardly from his very bowels. So we ask this question then. What dominates the picture? I think you can see the answer to that. It's just so pervasive in the Gospels. It's this picture of a compassionate, gentle, lowly Savior. But this brings us to ask especially this question about other attributes, and among them especially his holiness. What about the holiness of Jesus? Well, J.I. Packer, the theologian, he once wrote that a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And throughout the history of the church, this has especially been true of the person of Christ. Heresies have come up around his person. And typically, the heresies of church history, they're not upside-down depictions of who Jesus is, but rather lopsided pictures. The debates over the doctrine of Christ in the early church, they tended to be either a lopsided emphasis on his deity at the expense of his humanity, his humanity wasn't real, they thought, or it was an emphasis on his humanity, as Arian taught, and, and there was an eclipsing of his a, a deity. And as we stress the tenderness of the heart of Jesus, are we in danger of doing this? Are we in danger, you see, of, of neglecting his holy displeasure against sin? Well, Dane Ortland, he observes that for many of us, the danger is subtler than outright heresy. He writes that we might be fully orthodox in our theology, 
but drawn for any number of reasons to one side of Jesus more than another side. Some of us may have been raised in a rules-heavy environment with an endless sense of not measuring up. And we are especially drawn to the grace and mercy of Christ. But then speaking of other experiences, others of us have grown up in a chaotic free-for-all and the structure and order of a morally circumscribed life flowing from the commands of Jesus can especially be attractive. Others of us have been deeply mistreated by those who should have been our protectors in life. And we long for the justice and the retribution of heaven and hell to make all wrongs right. And so in our own experiences, we have a tendency to gravitate to one or the other aspect of Christ's character. But as we zero in on the heart of Jesus, and as we think about his compassion, as we think about his holiness... How can we ensure that we have a healthy understanding of who he is and what he's like? But I want to make three observations. And please be patient as we make them. And again, we're kind of building upon what we taught before. So we're not turning to a lot of passages here now. But the first thing I want to observe is that the mercy and wrath of Christ, they're not at odds with each other. It's not as if we have a seesaw. You know what a seesaw is, children? When one side goes down, what happens to the other side? It goes up. It's not like when one attribute, when Jesus' compassion goes down, well, then his holiness goes up. That if his holiness goes down, then his compassion goes up. It's not a seesaw like that, you see, where it has to be one or the other. We must never imagine that the stronger our view of the holiness of Jesus, the weaker our view of his tenderness. And the emphasis of the gospel is not either on his tenderness to eclipse his holiness. Our Lord's sympathy, it's not one-sided sympathy. Human sympathy is often that way. It tempts us to be partial to the objects of our sympathy, to defend people even where they're to be blamed. And this was never the case with Jesus. His tenderness and his holiness, they reinforced each other instead of canceled each other out. The perfect example is what we read in Mark chapter 3. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, I want to read the first five verses. And he entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. You see their heart. They're not worried about this man with a withered hand. They're worried about catching Jesus in something. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. And then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Jesus' enemies are watching to see whether he's going to heal on the Sabbath and break their extra laws that they had made about the Sabbath. And they wanted to accuse him. And he tells this man with the withered hand to step forward. And verse 5 tells us that when he looked around at them with anger, 
Being grieved at the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And his hand was restored. Now at that moment, it might seem that his anger is dominant. It's holy anger. But Mark tells us what it was that drove this anger. It was compassion that drove this anger. It was compassion for a man and grief over the lack of compassion in the hearts of these men. This is what filled his heart with such anger against them. His compassion for that man intensified his holy anger against the hard-heartedness that these people manifested toward this poor man. So these two attributes, they don't cancel each other out. They reinforce one another. Holiness and compassion. Now when we speak of the heart of Jesus, and here's a second observation, we're not trying to determine where the tenderness of Jesus' heart lies on some kind of a scale or a graph. We're always seeing these graphs on the news. And there's some kind of a wrath-mercy spectrum, we think. Let's evaluate where it's going to be. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to say that one attribute is compassion is more important than any other attribute. When we read the gospel accounts that emphasize the compassion of Jesus, we need to also take into account his holy regard for his Father, his utmost reverence for his Father's will. Our Lord was in constant communion with his Father, and he devoted himself to doing his Father's will. And so his tenderness for sinners, you see, it could never induce him, as it were, to take the sinner's side against the Father. He devoted himself to the Father in doing the Father's will. It never induced him to promote indulgence of sin in order that he might be merciful. It never led him to do what sometimes mothers do when they take the side of their children against the Father who has told them not to do such and such. This isn't what we have in Jesus. And so this emphasis in the Gospels on the tenderness of Jesus It's completely different from the ideas that prevail in what we might call modern humanitarianism. The idea behind this approach, you see, is that when people have their weaknesses, when they have their faults, it'd just be cruel justice to insist that they be perfect and have to punish them for all those things that they do. So we've got to let people go, you see. After all, that's just the way they are. Wealthy George Soros has spent billions of dollars to get about 80 prosecutors in key places around our country to refuse to uphold the law. This past week, I heard of a man in the city of New York who had been arrested 200 times, and 200 times been let right back out on the streets to go ahead and perpetrate more crimes. All in the name of showing compassion, you see, on the criminal. But what about compassion for the people that he's injured and stolen from and so forth? What about making a mockery of the law? This is what happens with that kind of an imbalance. But this isn't what we have in Jesus. He is so devoted to the holy law of God that at the time that he so, even though he loves sinners, he loves them to this end, that he does the only thing that can be done to satisfy both the justice of God and the love of God, he dies for their sins. The removal of a man's misery, it can't just be a simple act of saying, well, I'll I'll let you go. It could only be accomplished through the atonement that fully satisfies the justice of God. The thief on the cross is a perfect example. Justice all by itself it sees that this man is just getting what he deserved. He started a rebellion, he stole, maybe he even killed. He's just getting what he deserves. 
That's justice. Compassion all by itself, it just sees the man suffering. The man has had a hard life, we think. So a little thievery is understandable with people that have a hard life, you see. Let's let him off the hook. This is way too bad to do for somebody that's, that's done this. But instead, both the compassion of Jesus' heart and the holiness of God are upheld. Out of his infinite compassion, he satisfies the justice of God by dying in that man's place. And he satisfies the holiness of God by changing that man's heart from being a rebel to being a penitent believer. But then one more observation. When we stress the tenderness of Jesus, we're simply following the biblical witness about the heart of Jesus. It's not that one attribute is more important than the other. It's just that one is especially emphasized in the gospel accounts. In his marvelous monologue, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, B.B. Warfield, he, he finds exactly what we're saying here, that the emotion that is most frequently attributed to Jesus is the emotion of compassion. In other words, if there seems to be a disproportionate emphasis in the Gospels and this aspect of the character of Christ, then let's be disproportionate in our emphasis as well. Let's be like Jesus and emphasize this aspect of his character. It's impossible, you see, for the affectionate heart of Jesus to be over-celebrated. Our failure to draw from this wonderful aspect of his character all too often is neglected to our own detriment, and all too often we don't get the strength that we could draw from it. What do we read as we read the Gospels? Dane Ortland, in this book that has suggested this series, he's, he's very right. When Jesus sees the fallenness of the world all around him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Now, one way that brings this out in such a remarkable way is what we see by way of the backdrop of the Old Testament laws of cleanness and uncleanness. In the biblical terms, these categories in the Old Testament, they generally don't refer to physical hygiene, but they refer to moral impurity. Some kind of thing has been committed and there's moral impurity. There has to be a cleansing, you see, as a result, a ritual cleansing. In the Old Testament, you see the two can't be separated, but moral uncleanness and cleanness, this is the primary meaning of, of, of what, what's being there, what's being brought out in the Old Testament. And we know this because the solution you see for a person that's become unclean is not that he go take a bath. The solution you see is not that he wash up or, and so forth. The solution is that he bring a sacrifice. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 5. And why is it? What is God teaching his people? It's that the problem is not dirt, but the problem is guilt. Cleansing from leprosy, you see, it took place by means of various offerings and various rituals so that the leper might be morally clean once again. This is the lesson God is teaching his people. Now, one of the striking features of this system is that when an unclean person came into contact with a clean person, the clean person becomes unclean. In the Old Testament. If you get touched, you see, then he becomes unclean. Moral dirtiness, you see, is contagious. But what do we see in Jesus? 
In Levitical terms, he's the cleanest person ever. He's the clean one. Never having sinned. In external terms, there are certain things you see that repulse us. They're unclean to us. They, we want to get away from him. The sight and smell of maggots crawling over some kind of a dead animal. This is, just, this is how Jesus, he really feels this way about sin. It's repulsive to it. He hates it. Far more repulsive to him than maggots on a dead animal are to, is, is to us. We can't fathom the sheer purity and cleanness of his mind and heart. There's an innocence in Jesus that you and I have never experienced. But what did he do when he saw the unclean? When he got in contact with the unclean? What was his first impulse when he came across a prostitute, an unclean woman? What was his first impulse when he came across a leper? He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart. His heart overflowed with compassion. He did something that his fellow Jews would never do. He touched them. He touches the leper when he heals the leper. In the case of the woman that was a sinner, she crept up to remember behind him, washed his feet with her tears. He deliberately allowed her to touch him. Now we cherish the human connection that we love that we experience through touch. A warm hug does something that almost nothing else can do. But there was something even more precious, you see, with Jesus' compassionate touch. Because when Jesus, the clean one, touches an unclean sinner, or when the unclean sinner comes and touches to him, touches him by faith, Jesus doesn't become unclean. The sinner becomes clean. The opposite takes place, you see. This is a miniature picture of what Jesus came to the earth to do. Wherever he went, as he was confronted with suffering and sin, Jesus spread the clean contagion of his cleansing mercy. Well, I want to just mention briefly the fourth point in your outlines, the continuance of this tenderness. We've been speaking about what Christ was like when he lived upon earth, but what about today? We find the answer to that question very briefly in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, and I'll just quote it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And this is a theme that we're going to expound further down the road. Future sermons, God willing. But let me simply remind you that the same Jesus who was at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew what he was about to do, when he saw the tears of Mary and Martha and those weeping around them, he wept. He was filled with empathetic compassion for them. And just as he wept at that tomb, when we have lost a loved one, and when it seems perhaps that everything is falling apart in our lives, just maybe some of you have come to that point. I've been through this experience, but it just seems like life's over almost. It's just all wrecked. He enters into that. He knows all about that. He knows when we're filled with despair. Or when, like a leper, you sense everybody withdraws from you. Maybe they think you're unclean. Maybe they just don't like being around you. Maybe you're misunderstood. Maybe you're just sidelined for one reason or another, like lepers were back in those days. 
Jesus puts his arms around you, spiritually spiritually speaking. He draws you to himself with his embrace. He has sympathy even now. He's the same today. And even now, as we come to the table of remembrance, the same Jesus that cleansed messy sinners invites you who are his children to come to this table to celebrate and to remember what he did to save messy sinners, unclean sinners from their sins. Maybe I'm speaking to some believer this week. You, you look back upon this past week, you feel so defiled. You wonder, well, should I partake tonight? And what I want to say to you is, come to Jesus. Jesus receives people that know that they've sinned and that repent. And as for forgiveness, come to the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Come and be cleansed from your sins. The Lord's table also reminds us that we're one body in Christ. And there should be a special compassion that exists among disciples who are bound to the Lord Jesus. And so let the mercy of Jesus teach you to show mercy to one another as Christians. It's unbelievable how hard we can be on one another sometimes. How judgmental we can be. How censorious we can be. But like Jesus, be patient. Be sympathetic about the, to the infirmities of your brothers. Let this mind be in you, which was also in, in Christ Jesus. Learn to be like him. Learn to be gentle and patient and charitable and sympathizing. We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. We are members of one body. The pain of one member of the body is felt by the rest of the body. Maybe you've got a bad toothache. It radiates into your jaw, your head, your head begins to throb. Your body feels it, you see. And that's the way it is with the body of Christ. We should feel for one another. We should enter into into the trials of one another and reach out to one another, pray for one another, hug one another, and love one another as Jesus has done with us. And then finally, I'm also aware that any time I preach in this room, there are people that are here that do not yet know the Lord Jesus. You're still lost. You're still in your sins. Do you see that Jesus is a Savior that saves sinners? Unclean sinners made unclean by their sins? Do you see that he welcomes such ones? Do you see that he says to you, come to me. I am gentle and lowly in the heart. Why won't you come to him? Why won't you trust in this Lord Jesus? And as we celebrate the Lord's table, oh, this this is for Christians And yet it is a public proclamation of the gospel to you as well. That just as we offer bread to one another in the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself offers himself to you that you might come, that you might believe, that you might be saved from your sins. Jesus loves you. He put it in the heart of this preacher to preach to you, to reach out to you. He loved that rich young man that went away. He has compassion on you. He's not going to turn you away. He's not going to say, well, get out of here, you unclean person. 
you dirty person. No. Come, he says. Why don't you come? Why are you holding back? Don't hold back. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that <clears throat> out of your great love and out of your great compassion, which was reflected in your Son, you sent him into this world to save us from our sins. We bless you, Lord Jesus, for the great heart that you have for sinners. And we thank you that this heart of gentleness and lowliness and compassion, this has reached many of us in this room, touched us. We are the unclean ones that have been made clean by you. And afresh we would come to you, Lord Jesus, and where we have once again defiled our hearts, we would plead with you for forgiveness and for cleansing once again. We pray, too, that you would be pleased to, to touch the hearts of those who are yet in their sins, those who still are holding out, still are clutching the world, and still rebelling against you. Lord, turn their hearts to you. Enable them to repent and to believe. May they be persuaded, even, by the earnestness, by the compassion, by the love of this Savior, our dear Lord Jesus. We pray this in his holy and blessed name. Amen.